0: Welcome to Gospel Revolution Church. Welcome to everybody watching online. Um, But as I was saying, it's this beautiful dynamic about Jesus that no matter when you're talking about him, it's good. You could be in the midst of sorrow and sadness and crying and hurt and lonely and afraid and confused. You can be in the midst of all of that evil, but if you start talking about Jesus, it's good. If you start to see Jesus, it's good. And that's a powerful thing to say about somebody, that no matter when it is or where you find yourself at, you start talking about Jesus, and it is very good. And um, I was thinking of a verse in uh, Hebrews uh, real quick. I think it's a verse in Hebrew. Let's see. It's a verse that I think kind of escapes us because it, it tends to go against the traditional thinking about Jesus and and just the way we think of Jesus how many of you think Jesus needed to be saved right and that's that's why i say it goes against our traditional thinking and sometimes we eliminate the humanity of Jesus with the the god part of Jesus and vice versa many times we eliminate the the God part of Jesus, with his humanity. And it becomes difficult for us to strike the proper balance with Jesus. But I just want to read this verse to you. This verse is in the Bible. And you can go and talk with God. But unless you can see yourself in the face of Jesus when he's suffering, you're not going to find the same thing coming out of you that came out of him when you're suffering. Right? And I don't know if you guys realize it. when we're suffering, we can think there's so many different things that we need to do or we need to figure out or we need to fix to be delivered from the suffering. And we could end up with a flood of thoughts coming to us. And we can even start picking out all the things we see in our life that are all completely wrong. And we can start to think the way to get out of the suffering is for now all those things we see in our life that are completely wrong, we need to fix those things. And then we call that wisdom. But the scripture says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are contained in Jesus. So what that means is, we're supposed to see how it is we deal with suffering by looking at Jesus and how he dealt with suffering. But if you don't think Jesus the man had to be saved from anything, then you're never going to find yourself wondering what did this guy do when he needed to be saved. You'll have this theology where you say, he didn't need to be saved. I don't need to look to him. I'm just going to figure it out myself. So I'm just going to read this verse out loud to everybody. So you guys can say that you disagree with the scripture instead of you disagree with Greg. Because I didn't say this. So don't nail me to the pole. But I promise you, if you did nail me to the pole, this is what I would do. This is talking about Jesus. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh. Why does it mention in the days of his flesh? Because he's God. He's Alpha and Omega. He's the light that was released into the earth in Genesis. He's the Word that is God. He's that which created everything. So you have a couple different ways you could begin talking about Jesus. So the author of Hebrews comes and says, Who? Jesus. In the days of His flesh, when He had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto Him, that was able to save him from death. And he was heard, and that he feared. How many of you think Jesus was having a hard time when he was nailed to a tree? How many of you know there was a lot of different things he could look at that was a problem? It wasn't just that he's nailed to this cross right now. Because even you know, if he could sort it out in the carnal natural mind to get off of that cross, right? we're talking about Jesus as a man, He still had all those dudes down there that still wanted to nail him to a cross. So he didn't just have to sort out the dealing with this cross. He had to sort out the straightening out of everybody around his thinking. I mean, you can find yourself in a situation in life where you think your suffering is coming from the people around you thinking wrong and believing wrong. Well, you know what the temptation will, will, will be if you find yourself in that place, if you can now fix their thinking. If you can fix their behavior, if you can fix what's going on, and then the suffering can end. Jesus didn't think that on the cross. He didn't think the power to be saved from this death I'm dying is found in fixing the way everybody out there is thinking or in fixing what they're doing. He didn't think the way to be saved from the death of this cross is if I can keep these guys from nailing me to a cross. How many of you know he was clothed in the likeness of sinful flesh? That means he had a body that was dying. That body was going to die. I know we've heard in theology that Jesus' body couldn't have died. That's a lie. If his body couldn't have died, it wouldn't have died. His body came from Mary. The life he sat, had inside of that body is what couldn't die. But his body could die. And so it looks, listen to what it says. It says, in that he feared, he was heard. So what does it mean that he feared? Do you know what it means that he feared? You know, because the scripture comes and says, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Oh, the beginning of wisdom when? When you're suffering, when you're dying, when you're hurting, when everything around you is going wrong, when when everyone around you is going wrong. When you need wisdom to deal with all those things, it says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But then it comes and says, Jesus feared. And in that he feared, he was heard. Well, the verse also describes what the fear was that Jesus did. And it tells us what the fear of the Lord is. Do you know what the fear of the Lord was? When Jesus found himself suffering, when he found everybody around him not thinking right, not believing right, when he found everybody around him contributing to the suffering and to the death of the cross, Jesus saw the answer to healing or to saving him from all that was going on was to look to the Father. And so all he did, he, he was crying, filled with strong crying and tears, it says with all prayer and supplication. Do you know what all prayer and supplication is? We can boil it down to a real easy thing. Father! That was the beginning of wisdom there. In the midst of hard times. He looked to the one who could save him. And so if you're dealing with hard times, if you're dealing with hard people, if you're dealing with people in your life that, man, whichever way you look at it, they're all wrong. (laughs) Their thinking's crooked. Their behavior's crooked. The beginning of wisdom is for you to look to the Father to save you, not to you looking to your ability to fix them, to save yourself. (laughs) And what it looks like is, Father, into your hands I commit my desire for life. Father, I'm suffering. The darkness is thick. The confusion is thick. I'm struggling to see through it. I desire life. I desire clarity. I desire comfort. Into your hands I commit my desire. That's the beginning of wisdom. What you're doing is you're acknowledging everything you need is in God, not here or there. Because if you think it's here or there, guess what you'll be doing? Looking here, there, everywhere. You won't have a single eye. Your treasure won't be in heaven but your treasure will be here. That's the beginning of wisdom. You guys see that? You see what Jesus did when he needed to be saved? How many of you think that Jesus' suffering on the cross is at least equivalent to whatever suffering you're going through now? At least equivalent. Isn't it? I say it like that because our natural minds, we struggle to see the connection. What we don't understand is that one of the reasons Jesus suffered on the cross like that is because that's what was happening to all of us in the world. That was our life. So he showed us what our life looked like. Well, listen, we have a different life that's come from heaven, but do you know what the world still tries to do to all of us? Nail us to a tree. All the time. Well, what are we going to do when we find the world nailing us to a tree? Well, Jesus comes and shows us the beginning of wisdom. The wisdom that's from above. The wisdom about what do you do when the world's nailing you to a tree? What do you do when people that you love are nailing you to a tree? What do you do when the job is nailing you to a tree? What do you do when the government's nailing you to a tree? Father. Right? That's the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. It's the knowing or the acknowledging that whatever it is you need in that moment to be saved from what's happening, it's contained in the Father. And so you just cry out to him. Do you know, what you're, you know what you're essentially saying? And this is the part we don't like. I can't do nothing about it. My strength is empty. It's as dung towards the end of delivering myself. And that's what Jesus did. He said, take my doctrine on yourself for I am meek. Let's take my yoke. Come unto me, all you that are heavy burdened and laden, trying to heal yourself from your own suffering. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Yoke is doctrine, for I am meek. Do you know what he's saying there? You know what meekness means? It means you don't consider your own ability to save yourself. It means you consider the God's ability, the Father's ability to save you. And Jesus is saying, take my doctrine upon you, because my doctrine will always point you to the strength in the Father's hand to save you. And that will keep you from taking upon yourself the heavy weight of trying to deliver yourself from suffering. Right? Right? My doctrine will show you the Father there with you, lifting off of you the burden of trying to bring forth your own life out of the ashes. And you'll see the Father's hand upon you, stretch forth towards you, lifting you up out of the ashes. Right? You see that? I love that rescue song. I've heard that song a million times. See, there's something different about worship songs because they're not secular songs. Secular songs you could listen to a million times and you can get to the point where you're like, I can't listen to that ever again. I mean, I did that with like classic rock. I've listened to some songs so many times as a young guy that I can't even listen to it now when it comes on the radio. But that song, it doesn't. And do you know, that's she's singing from the first person, from the perspective of God. That's God saying. Jesus said if he wanted to, he could call down 10,000 angels. What did she say? I will send out an army to find you in the middle of the darkness. That's God. That's what Jesus saw about God. When he was in the middle of the darkness and he was nailed to a tree. He saw that about God and that's what caused him to call upon God. And so he could show all of us the wisdom we can implement in our life as we're going through that. And we could start, when we find ourselves in the darkness, we could find that song being sung in our hearts. Instead of thinking, where are you, God? Instead of the song, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You'll find yourself saying, you will send out an army to find me. Right? You don't feel lost no more if you know someone's looking for you. And what does she say? Light is true. Light is true. Man, when we're in the middle of the darkness, you know what we think? The darkness is true. We think the darkness is the most true thing that there is. But you know what happens when light shines in the middle of the darkness? You know what you don't see no more? The darkness. (laughs) So what's true, the darkness or the light? And so that's the gospel. That's what Jesus come to reveal us. Jesus is the light. And he came into the earth to shine a light into the midst of the most harrowing darkness that could ever be. That's the cross. And what light did he shine into it? Call upon God. He will rescue you. He will send out an army to find you. He is with you. I promise you, if you see God standing in your darkness, you know what you won't be looking at no more? The darkness. <laughs> it's an amazing dynamic. And so we'll just pray right now about that. Father, this world has a valley that's shadowed by death. Lord, that can confuse us, it can Try to blind us. It can press in on us. It could try and fill us with fear. Father, I just thank you that uh, you give us eyes to see you in your life in the middle of the darkness. In the middle of this valley shadowed by death. Father, and I know that I'm praying this according to what your will already is. Because you poured out your Holy Spirit to do just that. You sent Jesus to do just that. I just thank you, Father, that you heal our sight, that you open our eyes, that you heal our blindness and give us eyes to see you in the midst of whatever darkness we find ourselves in, Lord, that you become exalted in our sight, not the darkness. Thank you, Jesus. Glory to God. Amen. Um, and I just want to pray for, for Nick Nicholas Kiefer real quick because he found himself having appendicitis and he's in the hospital. And uh, I don't think he wants to get cut on, is what it sounds like. And so they're, they're trying to deal with it, I guess, with antibiotics or whatever. Is that what they, they said, I think? And so um, Thomas said that, that Nick was hungry because he can't eat. I guess why they deal with it, right? So we're just going to pray right now about that. Because I'm just thinking of Jesus when he was a-hungered in the, in the uh, desert. And I'm also thinking of when the disciples went off to get food. And Jesus didn't eat any of the food. And he says, I have meat that you know not of. And so that's what we're just going to pray right now for Nick. Father, we thank you that you could see Nick right now. That you're in that hospital room with him. That you're so intertwined with him. That you're experiencing that with him. I thank you, Father, that Nick has meat that the world knows not of. I thank you, Father, that you bring forth inside of him the knowing that he doesn't live by bread alone or by natural food alone, but by every word that you've spoken over his life. I thank you, Father, that within Nick's heart will be exalted the words, the same words Jesus heard, that you are my beloved son in whom he is well pleased. I thank you, Father, that Nick will see the heavens opening; he'll see the spirit descending upon him like a dove and he'll find nourishment. He'll find strength from your spirit of life. He'll find comfort from your spirit of life, and he'll find himself uh, having his hunger and his thirst satisfied. Thank you, Father, that his body be made whole. Thank you that the weakness be far removed from him, from not just his body, but from his sight, Lord, where he, all his sight can see is you and your hand resting upon his head. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for making him whole. Amen. Um, Annette, did you, you still want to say something? Okay. Just bear with me one second. All right, you know, up.
1: Lake, lake right here? Oh, okay. You can't hear me. It doesn't sound like it. Yeah? Okay. Awesome. Okay. Well, I love that song, Rescue, too. It was perfect. Because it goes perfect with what I have to say. And I was thinking about that, you know, I will send out an army to find you in the middle to find you. It's not like he doesn't know where we're at. <laughs> He's in us, even in us, right? You know, it um, doesn't mean to find you. It means, it, you know, as if he doesn't know. But to find you in the, the darkness that you're swimming around in. <laughs> you know, to find us in the death. And it says, after that, it says, I will never stop marching to reach you in the middle of the darkest or hardest fight. It's true. I will rescue you. And so that just kind of goes with what I have to say. I felt, I asked Greg if I could just say a couple words because I felt this burning, this burning inside of me for the last few days that, you know, the Lord gave me a word and spoke to me. And I just felt like it's it's not just for me, but it's for all of us. it's it's for some of the people in this room, for sure um and and for those who are online and for those who will listen. so anyway, I um was sitting outside the other night, and I was just thinking, just thinking thoughts. Um, just thinking about several different things. I'm thinking, thinking. And all of a sudden, this is what I heard the Lord say, and and I I shared it with the ladies at Bible study, and I put it on Facebook too. He said, um, I don't gamble. (laughs) He said, I don't, and I didn't just roll the dice when it comes to your life. He said, I gave all of me to get all of you and I won. And I was like, whoa. Did I just hear God talking to me? I, I've heard God speak with me before. But I was, <laughs> I had this other thought that ran through my head and I thought of afterwards as well. It's like, I I wasn't talking to him. I was just thinking. I hadn't. Done the formal, hey God, I'm here. I hadn't done the, hey, you know, Father called out his name, addressed him in order to invite him in to my thoughts. He was already there. He already is in us, in me. He was in me, thinking with me, speaking with me. How many are your thoughts, oh God? If I should count them, they should outnumber the grains of sand. They're your thoughts. Toward us, in us, He knows our thoughts even before they're on our lips or in our head, or in our minds or in our hearts. And as so as I'm just quickly ponder, you know how when you're the Lord speaking, things go very very fast. They seem to anyway. And He said, "Um, so I had like this. Was it really you?" And he said, I am faithful and true. He repeated it. You know, I didn't gamble. I didn't just roll the dice when it came to your life. I gave it all to get all of you, and I won. And and I am thinking, faithful and true, faithful and true. And he said, hear me and only me in all you hear. Hear me. So I went in the house and he he said some other things, but we won't get into that. It was just incredible words. to Matt and knife. and um, so I went and I was like, "Faithful and true. Faithful and true. Isn't that the name in Revelation on you know where Jesus is on the white horse and yeah yeah sure enough, faithful and true. And he and he is called faithful and true." the word of God and on his thigh, the king of kings and Lord of lords. And I was like, he confirmed it, you know, with, he said, (laughs) he confirmed that it was him talking to me. And so that night I had this, I had this dream. And in this dream, I'm going to get all emotional already. In this dream, you all were there you all were there people a bunch of other people were there but i could i could sense in the dream you it was all you i couldn't see faces real clear but um and i was there wherever there was and i got raped and somebody something was trying to kill me something was trying to kill me and I felt it chase after me Anna I start running and I I see Matt and I didn't want to tell him because I was ashamed I Felt so disappointed in myself. I thought it was my fault. I thought it would hurt us (laughs) or our marriage or our relationship somehow. And I kept running. I ran. I ran. Greg, (laughs) the two faces I saw clearly, my husband and Matt. Um, I mean, yeah, and Greg. (laughs) And uh, I see you. I see you sitting there. And I I just yell out, I was raped. He's going to kill me. And it's like I will never forget the look on your face. It was every emotion, every human emotion that one could possibly have. Like you were moved. God, to the very bowels of your being and, and love and compassion. It was all in your face as I ran by you. And then I turned and I saw Matt running after me. Somehow he knew too. He knew what had happened. And he started running after me. And with the same look, Y'all know our father came running after us to save us from death? I know there's people here and online that have felt like they have been raped. Maybe even physically, but raped. Felt like something's been stolen from them. Something's been taken. Your innocence has been stolen, like she sings in the song. Death's chasing you, trying to take you down. But our God sees you. He knows. He did something about it. He conquered it. He's conquered death and every destructive thing that has ever tried to take us down. And he comes in our darkness. And he finds us in there. And he restores our soul. (laughs) He gives us life. He has given us his very own life. And um, I have to read this part. Greg, you always say, The Lord the Lord gave to you. You know the verse. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed. The Spirit of the Lord is upon you because he has anointed you to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent you to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind. Jesus said that. That's him. But that Spirit of his same Spirit is on you. I realized this morning the Spirit's on me, too. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Um. But I just want to say thank you because, you know, I was blind. I was bruised. I needed deliverance. And I know who's done that for me. You know, Jesus, you know, my father, God has done that. But had I not heard, you know, had I not heard you preach, the spirit of prophecy, the faith, Christ crucified, the resurrection, all of it, had I not heard and been hearing and been listening, you know, I I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know him like I know today. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Thank you so much for all you do. Um, And Becky, um, you know, to bring to us This revelation into our hearts to know Him as we are fully known. That's it.
0: (laughs) Glory to God. Oh, I got to turn me down. 60. Thank you. That was beautiful. (laughs) Thank thank you. glory to God. Thank you, Jesus. Um, We're not going to do any announcements. I hope there's nothing important there. Um, What we will say is that Maurice and Marie are having a get-together at their house next Saturday at four or five? At four. You said five? It's four? Four o'clock at Maurice and Marie's house. If you don't know how to get there, You can ask them, but also what I'll do today is I'll figure out. Unless you guys mind, do you mind if I put your address on the website? I'll put their address on the website, and you can get it from there. Also, just give me like 24 hours. It might take me to figure out how to work the website because I am not a website person. Um, But we'll do that. And so, uh, bring a little dish. Is that is that how it's going?
1: Kind of
0: you right. Oh, you don't want to end up with a bunch of food. Yeah. So you don't want a bunch of people bringing so, food. Okay. Easy, easy things to do. Okay, good. And also, um, we have the this the faith translation, the New Testament from uh, Galatians to Jude. Um, we have some copies out there. And guess what? You ain't got to give us no money for it. Imagine that. We just want you to have it for free, for free. Freely we have received and freely we will give to you. And so, man, I encourage everybody to get one of those. They're out there. If they run out, don't leave without me going to get another one out of the box for you. Um, You're not going to find a uh, translation like this. It translates the scriptures from the perspective of uh, the faith that was revealed in Jesus, and death being the problem, and uh, the resurrection life being the solution. And it goes back and looks at the New Testament, looking at the Greek and the Hebrew through that lens, and it puts it together. And on the inside of the page, on the inside of the front page, there is a QR code. For those of you who don't know, you take the camera on your cell phone, and you hover it over that QR code, and it gives you a link where you can download the app on your phone. He's continuously updating it and adding to it, okay? Do yourselves a favor and get this. It will help you start to understand the spirit of what the scriptures are communicating. And what some people don't know is our understanding of the scriptures has been uh, defiled by the carnal mind and the wisdom of the world, right? And we've lost sight of the problem being death in our bodies, and the solution being Jesus raised from the dead bodily. And what we've done is we've made the problem our bad behavior, right? And now we've made all the cross and everything about God having to deal with our bad behavior. But listen, the behavior is the fruit. It's not the root. And so Jesus didn't come to clean the outside of the cup. He said as much. He came to clean the inside of the cup. And the way he cleans the inside of the cup is he takes an ax to the root of death that got planted in the earth. That's why it says by one man, Adam, death entered the world and death reigned, right? And so, man, we've been taught the scriptures from a perspective that won't really help us because it doesn't pluck out the root of death and it doesn't plant the seed of God's incorruptible life inside of us. Right, so this does a great job of highlighting that. So do yourself a favor, get a copy, get the app on your phone. It will be continuously updated. I love that that translation of the Bible. It's magnificent. It's uh, what I want to say is it's from above. Right, is, is what I want to say about it. It it's from above. It's not what Jesus say to Peter, flesh and, and blood has not revealed this to you, but our Father in heaven. Um, that thing ain't been written by the inspiration of a man. A man may have put his hands to it to write it out, but man, that that thing's come straight from above. I feel great confidence saying that. I feel no uh, guile in myself even making a statement like that. My goodness. Lord have mercy. Okay. We'll just, uh, we'll just pray. Thank you, Father, that you're here with us. Thank you uh, for the promise of your life. I just I uh, Lord, we just ask that uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, the promise of your life could become uh, very real inside of us, that it become the pillar, that it become the foundation from which our lives are born, from which our lives are planted. I thank you, Lord, that you, you plant our lives deeply. In this truth. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Um, I don't think I'm going to preach long today, but you don't know. But I don't plan to. I made short notes. And I just want to kind of highlight something from the last couple weeks. Over the last couple weeks, the last couple weeks have been awesome for me, right? Having uh, Batterty and Ileana here, awesome for me. I love those people. I shared a little bit about I don't just feel connected with Birdie in the sense of uh, the preaching of the gospel. But uh, it's deeply personal for me with them. They are great friends. And so it was awesome having here. Um, and then the gathering in Branson was awesome. And then having Kyle here, right? And uh, some of you are like, who's Kyle? Kyle is an Irish guy, right, that came, flew to the States and was with us and then was in the, the Branson and then was here. But he left because he don't like the camera. And he didn't want to be on the camera. And so he left. I'm messing with him. No, that's not why he left. He left to go to Cancun. <laughs> he doesn't like the camera. But I've been picking on him with the camera, though, and he's probably watching. <laughs> um, but he left. He's in Cancun um, living up the last few days of his uh, holiday in the States in the warm weather. But o- over the last few weeks, um, you know, all the talking, the, one of the things I've been twisting on with God is the promise of life. Because that's been talked a lot. That's been talked about a lot. The, the promise of life. And, and what is the promise of life? And not, not just what is the promise of life, but really, why does that have an impact on us? Right? And, you know, something I, I love about the scriptures and things like the promise of life, there, you can't exhaust the different uh, ways you can describe it or depict it. And each of the different ways plays a part in planning it deep inside of our hearts, or rather, you know, planting our lives deep inside of it. So I've been twisting on the promise of life. Um, And for those of you who don't know, that's like one of the, the, the whole pillars of the entire gospel, the promise of life. Jesus said, I came so that you would behave properly. I came because I was so upset about your bad behavior. Did he say that? No, he said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And and really, when you look at it in the Greek, what he's saying there is, I came to give you a life that superabounds over the death that sin planted in the earth. That's what he says. And so he really came to affirm the promise of life, which listening to Bertie and and Bertie being here and, and at the conference, many of you already know that God promised us life from before the foundation of the world. That's what the whole thing was about. And so when we get to the gospel or we get to jesus coming into the earth it's not now about something different than that it's still about that right and 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 what it's about is him coming to fulfill the promise of life it's about him coming to demonstrate to us that our sin and the death that the world has in it the sin of adam and the death that adam brought into the earth cannot make god's promise void right And and so for those of you that like to read the scriptures, you can see Paul talk about this in Titus chapter 1, verse 2. And he says, Paul, it's Paul talking about himself, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began you might think, why would you even have to say God who cannot lie? You might think, why does he even have to go into that? Why does he have to say that God promised this before the world began and God cannot lie? And I don't know if you guys realize this about the promise of life, but when it talks about before the world began, that doesn't mean before the earth was created. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying he before the earth was created. Who would he promise? How could he promise Adam if Adam wasn't created? (laughs) So when he said God promised eternal life before the world began, he's talking about the world that Adam found it when Adam brought death into the earth. Which is why he comes in with who cannot lie. Because when Adam found it, this world that we see, not creation, not the trees and the stars and the sky, But the world system that we see, Adam founded it. What he did was he founded a world on the shoulders of a perishable life. A life that's decaying. A life that's corruptible. A life that can die. He founded a world on the shoulders of death, actually. Right? Now, when Adam founded that world, do you know what that world... There's the wisdom of the world. Do you guys know the scriptures talk about the wisdom of the world? Do you know what the world started declaring? When Adam brought death into the world, it started saying God's a liar. And the way it said God's a liar, it it, it, it was declaring that His promise, His promise of life has now been made void. Because remember how Abraham, when God came and promised Abraham... I am your shield and your buckler. I am your exceeding great reward. I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. You know what Abraham said? What shall you give me, Lord, seeing the deadness in my body and the deadness in Sarah's womb? Do you see how the deadness there was trying to declare that God, what God was saying wasn't true? Do you see how the deadness there was trying to convince Abraham that the promise was void based on his deadness? And so when Adam brought death into the earth, death started declaring to all of us that God's promise of life was made void. After all, how can he give us life? Look at us dying. Look at our body of death. We're dying. What can you give me, Lord? Do you know that same thing comes out of us every time we encounter death in this earth? It's like we think that God, what can you give me, Lord? Look at this. Instead of thinking, thank you, Father, that you can bring forth your fruit in me even in the midst of this death. Thank you, Father, that I'm like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Thank you, Father, that my roots run deep into your life. Thank you, Father, that your life is unceasing in your fruitfulness. Thank you, Father, that you bring forth an increase in me. Thank you, Father, that even now as I'm speaking, an increase is coming forth in me. That's the kind of stuff that comes out of you when you realize death can't make the promise void. And so that's why Paul comes in with who cannot lie. That's why he talks about that he promised before the world began. You know, Paul also come and said that God chose Jacob before they were even born. That it wouldn't be based upon their own works. And that the election would be sure and everybody could see that it was by grace. And not by your works. Because Jacob inherited the blessing of the firstborn, but he wasn't the firstborn. So it wasn't based on the strength of the flesh. Paul comes and said, so they wouldn't be based on either thing that they had done right or wrong. That's the same kind of dynamic when Paul comes and said that God promised before the world began. He promised before death entered the earth so that you could see that the promise of life had nothing to do with whether sin or death would ever enter in. And you would never judge the promise of life by looking at that, right? That the promise would be sure. Paul's like, wait, 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 no, 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 no. You guys are busy thinking when God promised life that he's a liar because of the death that's in the earth? God promised before this world was founded on the shoulders of death. So death coming into the earth can't do away with what he promised. He promised before sin and death came in. Sin and death has no role in whether or not he's promised life. And now Paul comes and says the promise that he promised has now manifested to demonstrate once and for all right? So the the promise of life, I've been thinking about that a lot. The promise of life is the promise of of God's life. It's not just the promise of a life. It's the promise of his life. That's what it is. And, and, And that makes a big difference. It's not any old life he promises us. It's his life he promises us. And that's not just supposed to be some fancy theological thing that we think of. Yeah, he promised me his life. It's meant to connect with us on a deep human level. Right? And I'm going to hopefully point you guys to a picture you can all relate to. That will help that really mean something inside of you. And you can start to think of it. Right? In a different kind of a way. Instead of just a theological way. Right? It, the promise of, of life. And that's why we put in his, the promise of his life. The moment it becomes the promise of his life, it takes it away from just any old kind of a thing where you could promise somebody something. I promise you I'll come to your house and help pick up the leaves. I promise you that I'll help you move. I promise you I'll give you some money. Right? That's not that intimate. That's just like, oh, yeah, you promised me something. But when it comes to he promised his life, what it, what it does is, It brings it to its proper perspective because the promise of life is much more personal and intimate than you just promising someone something. There's a deep level of personal intimacy involved with God's promise of life. That's why you add in the his when you think about it, because he didn't just promise you any life. He promised you his life. And that helps catch you up in the deep personal intimacy that the promise of life is actually painting that is actually telling us, right? It starts giving it real teeth. It starts giving it real meaning, right? The promise of eternal life is is more accurately relatable to a marriage vow or a marriage oath is what I want to say. And so when you think of the promise of life, when you think of the promise of his life, you want to start thinking about uh, when God promised us his life, It's more accurately relatable to what would be a marriage vow or a marriage oath than it would look like a promissory note, right? Where you sign a contract and on the contract they promise, right? I promise this contract, right? I don't know if you guys realize this, probably all of you are old enough to realize this. I've entered into a whole lot of contracts with people where they promise something and I'd tell you, it's like the flip of a coin whether or not they actually follow through. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? That's not the kind of thing. That's not the kind of uh depiction that the promise of of life is trying to give to us. And the closest depiction we have of God promising his life is the kind of promise that I made to Becky when I proposed to her and vowed my life to her. That's kind of gotten lost in our society, especially amongst the men. Right? But guys, just so you understand, When you get down on one knee and ask the woman to marry you, you're vowing your life to them. And what you're saying is, their life and it going well for their life is more important to you than your life. To the degree that you are vowing your own life, you are committing your own life to their well-being. That's what you're saying when you get down on one knee and propose. Which is what God's doing when He promised us His life right it's not just some fancy theoretical thing well i want you to have a life and so well i'll come and give you this life if you look in genesis chapter 1 verse 26 and so you you might say from where from before the world began well where is that well, it's in the scriptures it's amazing genesis chapter 1 verse 26 and god said let us make man in our image after our likeness And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Here comes the promise part. And he blessed them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So when Paul says that God promised us eternal life from before the world began, he's talking about this part where it says, God blessed them. And what's interesting is when you look at the language used there in Hebrew for blessed, it's Barak. is the Hebrew word. And do you know what it talks about? It talks about somebody getting down on bended knee in adoration of another person. To honor them based on what they see there, to honor them in the sense of telling them, your life is precious to me. Your life is so precious to me that I am vowing my life to you. That's what it's talking about there. And I know we've twisted it up in our English language where we only look at this naturally, where we say God said be fruitful and multiply. And we think that talks about, well, go off and have some babies. Go have some babies. And I'm not saying there's no natural component that you could read into that. But Paul talked about the letter of the Scriptures and the spirit of the Scriptures. And there's a spirit of those Scriptures, and it isn't God telling them to be fruitful and multiply. If I get down on one knee and vow my life to my wife, I'm not telling her to now go off and produce babies. What I'm telling her is I will bear fruit inside of her. My life will be born in her. I'm not telling her to go off and be fruitful herself. And so when you look at that in the scripture, what it would more, more, arc, more accurately read is to say that God blessed them and he promised them he would make them exceedingly fruitful. That's what it says in the Hebrew. I will cause you to increase. I will cause you to be exceedingly fruitful. Walk before me and be thou perfected. Walk before me, and the earth will be subdued by the fruit of my life and the life I produce in you. That's the same thing God would have said to Jesus. Be fruitful and multiply. But Jesus didn't have a wife. So how is Jesus going to be fruitful and multiply? By seeing that God promised him That God would bring forth his fruit in him. That God had vowed to him his life. And that God would bring forth his life inside of Jesus. And do you know what that would do? Is if Jesus walked before God and God perfected his life in the man Jesus, do you know what that would do? It would subdue the whole earth unto the life of God. Which is what Paul come and said when he said God reconciled the world unto himself. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And Jesus... He's fruitful because here we all are. Aren't we? Doesn't it say that God wanted many sons and daughters? That He's the firstborn from the dead in order that there might be another harvest? And so that's what God's telling Adam. God got down on bended knee and He said to Adam and Eve, When someone gets down on bended knee in front of you, you ever seen a woman when someone gets down on bended knee in front of them? Well, most of them. Some of them are thinking, please don't do that. I don't want to marry you. And the reason why they don't want to marry them is because even if they don't understand the, the subconscious mind of it all, they're thinking, I don't want your life. So don't get down on one knee and vow your life to me. It doesn't look so good. It looks a little jacked up. I'm not sure I want that life to be my decoration. Right? (laughs) It's adoration. A woman knows. When a guy gets down on bended knee, they get down on bended knee because they adore me. And I'm precious to them. So there's God getting down on bended knee in adoration of Adam and Eve because their life is precious to them. And what he does is he vows his life to them and promises them that his life is exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful by giving you my life, by vowing my life to you. Right? That's what Adam would have saw. And you see the same thing with Abraham. Did God tell Abraham to be exceedingly fruitful or God tell Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful? Do you see how it's it's God promising he'll make them exceedingly fruitful, and not God telling them to go be exceedingly fruitful? Right? we got to get that right. You know, it's just like Jesus said. Adam and Eve, Jesus said we're the branches, didn't he? How many branches you know can make themselves exceedingly fruitful? Okay, well Adam and Eve, they're the branches, aren't they? Okay, so they would need a vine in order to be exceedingly fruitful, wouldn't they? (laughs) They would need to be grafted into the vine because a branch can do nothing of its own. When a man proposes to a woman, they should be thinking of what the woman can give them. In fact, that should be far from their mind. It's not about what can you bring to the table. That's like the world's way of thinking. We call it power couples. And I'm not saying the woman doesn't bring anything to the table. And I'm not saying she doesn't offer something. Because I promise you, when a woman flourishes, when a woman feels safe, when she feels secure, when she feels protected, when she feels like there's a sanctuary being provided for her, you watch what happens inside of a woman. I promise you, it will bless you. So it is isn't the woman doesn't bring anything to the table, but the man is not proposing based on what he thinks the woman can give him. In fact, that's far from his mind. The man is proposing, thinking, I want to empty my life towards the end of your well-being. Young guys don't like that when I tell them that in marriage counseling. Because they want to talk about everything the woman's doing wrong. This isn't about marriage counseling, I'm sorry. (laughs) You guys understand what I'm saying? About God got down on bended knee and what's going on there. We're trying to paint this picture of what's going on there. Because that's the promise of life. That's what Paul's talking about when he says before the world began. Right? And so, you know, one of the words for fruitful is decoration, actually. So when God says, I will cause you to be fruitful, he's talking about decorating their life beautifying their life with himself with his life right and so when he promised them when god promised to make them fruitful when god blessed adam and eve he was promising to decorate them in his life right and that's just like what the apostle paul says in first corinthians 3 when he says one may plant and one may water but it's god who gives the increase And that's what's going on there. God blessed Adam and Eve and he promised that he would cause an increase of life in them. And of the increase of his life in them, there would be no end. That's what he's saying to them, right? You guys see that? You getting a little bit of a picture of what the promise of life is? It's not just a theological term. It's deeply intimate, it's deeply personal. We have many natural examples of it in the world that that can cause it to register with a deep level of intimacy which which paints a picture of the promise of life, right? And what it tells us when we see God get down on bended knee is it tells us the promise of life, it's the promise of his life, it's much more like a betrothal. It's much more like God betrothing himself to us rather than him just giving us something. You see, it's much more of a servant's mentality, because I promise you, when you're asking a woman to marry you, I know the world doesn't think this way, guys, so I hate to shatter your life, but what you're actually saying to the world is you desire to serve them all the days of your life. And you desire to serve them with the life you have in yourself. And you desire to spend all your days loving them with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is what's going on when God promised life. This is what's happening. It tells us the promise of life is in the likeness of a betrothal. It's God wanting to betroth Himself to us. And what it means is, God isn't just promising us life, He's promising us Himself. The promise of life is God promising us Himself. Which is what I promised Becky when I got down on one knee. I was promising her myself. I was offering her myself and my life. That's what I was offering her. And that's what the promise of this life is. God offered himself to us and in proposing himself to us, that's what it is. He's proposing himself to us. That's what I was doing with Becky. I was proposing myself to her. In God proposing himself to us, he's vowing his life to us. Right? The promise of himself. Well, it just so happens he has life in himself. So that's why we say the promise of life. Because if he don't have life in himself, what is it can he promise us? You see with Abraham, you see another picture of what the promise could look like. In Abraham, God said to Abraham, I am your shield. I am your exceeding great reward. Did God promise Abraham a shield? Did he promise Abraham an exceeding great reward? Or did he promise himself? Himself. It just so happens the life he has in himself will be a shield and a buckler. Hedging you about and protecting your life. Giving you a place of sanctuary. Giving you a place of refuge. Where just like a woman will flourish when she has a sanctuary, when she has a safe place, when she feels protected, when she feels guarded, when she feels love, when she feels like there's a place of refuge for her and she flourishes and she bears much fruit, God promised us Himself so that we would have a place of refuge, so we would have a sanctuary, so we could have a place of safety, a place of security, where our lives could flourish and we could bear much fruit. The shield is God himself. The reward is God himself. The promise is God himself. And we don't want to restrict the person of God out of the promise. It's God on bended knee, like Bertie said. You know, Paul come and said that we're heirs of God. He didn't say, well, you've inherited a shield. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You've inherited a life. And it's not to strip out the part about the life. It's to fill out the whole picture. He said you've inherited God. Well, if you've inherited God, it's telling you that that means God promised you himself. Because you can only inherit what he promised you. And what you've inherited is God. Now, when you think of having inherited God, you start wanting to think about the life he has right? Like if you get a letter in the mail that says, come to the reading of a will, you've inherited something. Well, you don't just sit in the house and think, oh, glory to God, I've inherited something back to my normal day. No, you're like, what time do I need to show up? (laughs) And why do you even want to show up? You like want to unwrap that present. You're trying to find out what did I inherit then so I can know how it impacts my life. When there's Christmas, And the gifts are under the tree. How many of you are like, I don't need to open the gifts? They're just there. Hallelujah. No, you're busy unwrapping them. Why are you busy unwrapping them? Because you want to know what it is you got. (laughs) And so when you hear that you're heirs of God, it isn't just supposed to be some lofty theological thing. It's supposed to speak deeply to you where you start thinking of, well, what does that mean that I've inherited? And even if you ask God, I mean, I'm going to tell you, it means you inherited the life he has in himself. And you can start talking with God about what kind of a life that is and what does this life look like in all these different situations. Or you could just say to God, I see in the scriptures that I've inherited you, but what does that mean, Lord? That Even that thought sounds so lofty, I don't even know how to wrap my head around it. You could just start talking with him like that. Boy, it's his good pleasure to unwrap it with you. When you give a child a gift, man, It's like you that got the gift because you're watching them unwrap it. You're watching the smile on their face when they get to what it is you gave them, the joy. That's how it is for God. You start asking God, what does it mean that I've inherited you? What does it mean that you promised me your life? What does it mean that you got down on bended knee and proposed yourself to me? What does it mean that you vowed your life to me? Man, it's like a parent that gives presents to kids and the kids are just... this big smile will come across his face, and he'll come sit down with you. Let's unwrap that thing. Right? The proposal, bend at knee, that's the promise. I want you to start thinking of the promise in the sense of when a man proposes to a woman. I think what a, what, what a proposal actually is in terms of marriage has been completely lost in our society now. Maybe not in some of your generations. Really beginning with my generation and going down, the whole idea has been lost. Right? Every person is so filled with their own, you know, needs and desires that they look at marriage as what can you do for me? There's no marriage that can survive from that foundation. What can you do for me? (laughs) That's why you see bankrupt. Right? So when a man proposes to a woman, like I said, he's promising her his life. That's what he has to offer. I'm promising you my life. And what he's doing is he's offering her his life. Here, it's yours. He's committing his life to her. And that's what he's telling her. My life is committed to you. My life I'm committing my life towards the end of your well-being. He's telling the woman he's dedicating himself to her. That's what he's saying when he gets down on one knee. I'm dedicating myself to her. He's promising her himself, and in promising her himself, he's promising his life to her. It's a statement of devotion the most significant type of devotion that could ever be. That's what he's doing. And as, as a man, what you're telling the woman is your desire is unto her and you're committing your life to her well-being. You are dedicating your life to her. It's a statement of devotion where you're pledging your life to her. Towards the end of her flourishing. Towards the end of her being fruitful. Towards the end of her being decorated. Towards the end of her being beautified. Towards the end of her being exalted. Towards the end of her safety, her security. Towards the end of her having a sanctuary. Towards the end of her having a refuge. That's what you're doing. You're offering yourself to the woman, you're pledging your life to her to be a shield and a buckler. I will buffet anything that comes against your life with my life. That's why even in high school when we grew up, somebody says something to your girlfriend. That's a problem. Say whatever you want about me. You come disrespecting my girlfriend, now we're going to have a squabble in the street. Somebody's going to bleed. Bleed. We don't even understand where these things come from. It's because inside of the man is this desire to vow his life to the woman. To dedicate his life to the woman. To lay down his life for the woman. To be a shield and a buckler for her. To protect her life. To create a sanctuary, a refuge. To create a place where she can flourish. To create a place where she can be exceedingly fruitful. Unceasing in her fruitfulness. Where there can be no end to the increase of her well-being. got a bunch of guys running for the hills now. They don't want no part of that. They're not taught. That's exactly right. The world has raised them to think of themselves. But how will they hear unless there's a preacher? You're exactly right. They've been raised in the world system. And it's caused a chasm. And the women have been raised in the world system too. The women have helped along with this thing. And it's not to judge either one of them. I don't need you to open the door. I don't need you to do that. I can do it. I will be my own shield and buckler. And then the man, they become confused. The world has helped both men and women not understand this. That's one of the reasons why we need the gospel, right? What you would say to the woman when you get down on one knee, it's an unspoken thing you're saying. Really, if you don't have anything to offer her in the way of your life, you shouldn't be proposing yet maybe. I mean, I remember before I after a bad relationship I had, I didn't go on I didn't go on a date for four years. Because I realized there were some squirrely things in me that I didn't really have anything to offer yet. I needed to be made whole. So I'm not gonna be out there dating and promising someone anything or vowing my life to anyone when my life is a disaster. And so four years I went fixing myself, or getting with God rather, and letting God heal me. Right? But when What you would be saying as a man, this is what God would be saying when he got down on bended knee. What you're saying is, I have this life. It's beautiful. Beautiful. Look at it. Because she can see it when you get down on bended knee. She can see your face. She can see your eyes. I have this life. It's beautiful. It has strength in it. It provides all that I need. And it doesn't just provide all that I need. It provides exceedingly abundantly above all I could ever ask or think that I even need. It super abounds, this life that I have. It can be the safety and security you need. My life can be a sanctuary for you. It can be a place of refuge for you where you can flourish and bear much fruit. What I want is I want to offer you myself so my life can be a decoration for you. I want to be joined together with you so you can now be covered upon with my life. This is all the promise of life. This is what's all wrapped up in there. Some of you marvel at what God... Listen, I marvel at how God... I could take one little lyric in a song and turn it into 10 hours. And sometimes what's lost in the preaching is the ability to sit there. We're so busy. Is the ability to sit there and allow the picture to be painted and just soak in what the imagery is instead of thinking, let's move on. And give the Spirit a moment to start ministering to us and paint the picture of the Father. The Father got down on bended knee to you. He proposed Himself to you. He promised Himself to you. He vowed His life to you. He's telling you that He's dedicated His life to you. That He's committed His life towards you. And just like a woman in the world, when she gets a proposal, whether she knows it or not, and even women when they're being courted, they're immediately thinking about, well, what kind of life does the guy have? Is he a wreck? And they're weighing that in when they're thinking of, do I want to be joined together with him? That's what you want to be caught up into. What what kind of life does God have that he's even promised me? If he's promised me himself. Because in just being caught up in that, you know what you'll find? You'll find a place of refuge. You'll find a sanctuary for yourself. You'll find a safety and security start to hedge you about. You'll start to find God's life when you start inquiring of what is it that he's promised me when he promised me himself. You'll start to find his life being a shield and a buckler. You'll start to find his life providing you a refuge where you're able to flourish. And you're bearing much fruit. Right? You see that? You guys understanding that? You following me? You still with me? This stuff's all over the Bible. Ezekiel chapter 16, we'll begin with verse 4. And as for your nativity, in the day you were born, this is God talking to Israel, which is a picture of God talking to mankind. That's why he picked Israel, which looked like the least of all the people, because man was dead in their sin, Oh, wretched man that I am. And he wanted us to see what he's saying to us. All of us. And as for your nativity, in the day you were born, your navel was not cut. Neither were you washed in water to supple thee. You were not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. No one's eye pitied you to do any of these unto you, to have compassion upon you. But you were cast out in the open field to the loathing of your person in the day you were born. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall save me from this body of death? (laughs) And when I passed by you, this is God talking to us. And when I passed by you and saw you polluted in your own blood, that's polluted with death. Blood is a sign of death. When I saw you polluted in your own blood, I said unto you when you were in your blood, live. There's the promise of life. Yea, I said unto you when you were in your blood, live. Live. I have caused you to multiply as the bud of the field and you have increased in wax and grape and you are come to excellent ornaments. There's the decoration. Your breasts are fashioned and your hair is grown whereas you were naked and bare before. Now when I passed by you and looked upon you, behold, your time was the time of love. When I walked by you and saw you, I heard music. And the song I heard was, Who's that lady? (laughs) Some of you are like, dang, you're that old? (laughs) Because I look young if it wasn't for the hair. Now, when I passed by you and looked upon you, behold, your time was the time of love. Listen to what God says. And I spread my skirt over you. And covered your nakedness, yea, I swear unto you, and entered into a covenant with you. Covenant means promise. It means an oath. It means a vow. That's why we call it a marriage covenant, because you're vowing to one another. You know what we would vow to God? I vow that I will let you decorate me. I vow that I will not try to clothe myself, but I will let you clothe me. I vow that I will let you serve me with your life. I vow that I will let you empty yourself for me. I vow that I will not try to decorate myself with life. I vow that I will let you be my shield and my buckler. I spread my skirt over you and entered into a covenant with you. Yea, I swear unto you. That's the bend at knee. That's the promise. Yea, I swear unto you, and entered in a covenant with you, says the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I washed you with water. Yea, I thoroughly washed away the blood from you, and I anointed you with oil. That's his life, the spirit of life. I clothed you also with broidered work and shod you with badger skin and I girded you about with fine linen and I covered you with silk. I decked you also with ornaments and put bracelets upon your hands and a chain on your neck and I put a jewel on your forehead and earrings in your ear and a beautiful crown upon your head. Thus you were decorated with gold and silver and your raiment was of fine linen and silk embroidered work. You did eat fine flour and honey and oil and you were exceedingly beautiful and you prospered into a kingdom and your renown went forth among the heathen for your beauty for it was perfect through my comeliness it was perfect through my vow to you which I had put upon you says the Lord God that's all marriage that's God talking about the promise of life and how he made them exceedingly fruitful how he decorated them I spread my skirt over you listen God's not Scottish He's not talking about he's got a kilt on. And he took his kilt off and he put it over you. We love Scottish people. We love our brother Brad McLeod. But it's not saying God was wearing a kilt. Or that God's Scottish. And I'm trying to help you guys see when you read the Scriptures where you start to think, what does that mean? And you ask the Lord. What does it mean, Lord, that you spread your skirt over me? Because that's what he did. That's what he promised. What it means is, my life will be your provision. That's what it means. I will shield you. It's the same thing God describes elsewhere in the Scripture where He says that He will spread His wings over us. It's the same kind of a thing. When you spread your wings over somebody, you know what it creates? A shadow a covering, a refuge, a place of sanctuary, a safe place. Do you know why even the young people want to have safe places in school? Safe spaces? Because there's something in them where they know they were created to feel safe. They were created to feel secure. And because they haven't heard about God promising himself to them and that he is the only safe place, that his bosom is the only place of safety and security, that his bosom is the only sanctuary, that his life is actually the only thing that can shield them, they're busy trying to make their own safe spaces. And I promise you, the more safe spaces they make, the more anxiety they feel. If you make safe spaces out of the place of anxiety, you're creating more anxiety. You actually can't create a safe space born from anxiety. Because every seed reproduces after its own kind. Right? So it's marriage language when he says, I spread my skirt over you. They even do things like that in the Jewish wedding ceremony. The skirt or the wing spoke of God's life. And when God says he spread his skirt over us, he's saying, swearing, I swore myself to you. Swearing. I dedicated my life to you. I committed my life to you. And my life became a refuge for you. It was your safety and security. It carved out a place of safety where you could flourish, where you could bear my fruit. My life was a decoration unto you, beautifying you in the fruit of my spirit. That's what he's saying. This is all the promise of life. Imagine you could take that one little phrase and preach for this long. The promise of life. You know, one of the meanings of the Hebrew words for promise is a place of sanctuary. The the psalmist come and said that the Lord is my refuge. I mean, what is a refugee? Somebody fleeing a place that ain't safe. And they're fleeing to a place that is safe. And the psalmist come and says, I see that God vowed his life to me, that God got down on bended knee, me, and God promised me himself, that God promised his life to me, that God committed his life to me, that God dedicated himself to the well-being of my life. And now I see the life God has in himself. I see it's my shield and my buckler. I see that it keeps me safe. It is my refuge. This is the promise of life. The promise, the word promise, it means a place of sanctuary, a place of order. How many of you like it when you feel chaos? How many of you like it when you feel confused? So God's promised you himself. And inside of himself is a life that makes everything that's crooked straight. Sets everything in order. It removes the chaos. Even when God said, let there be light in the midst of the darkness and the chaos that was upon the earth. It brought forth order out of the midst of chaos. It brought forth life there. Thus demonstrating to us the kind of life he has in himself, what it means when he promised us himself in his life, and what we can expect that that life is doing for us. The promise of life. Right? So when God got down on Bended Knee, in adoration, he was telling us, my life will be a sanctuary for you. He was saying to us, You know how we say for better or for worse, right? We think it's just nice language. Well, if you're real bad for a while, I'll stay. Where do we even get the language for better or for worse? I promise you it comes from God getting down on bended knee. And what does God mean when he says for better or for worse? It sounds something like this. God is promising us that in good times and bad, that his life will be a shield and a buckler for us. And he's telling us, in offering you myself, I'm promising you my life. And even should the worst happen to you, even should the death that's in the world come upon you, the life I have in myself can even raise you up free from death. Because that's really the only thing that can make us feel safe. Is if we think that we have a life, or there is such a life that can't be harmed. And that we could climb up into the bosom of that life like a cleft in a rock. And that we could find ourselves being shielded from the destruction in this earth. And that's what God's promising us, for better or for worse. The life I have in myself, the life I've promised you, even should the death in this world come upon your house, the life I have in myself can raise you up even free from death, never to die again. That's the promise of life. This is what he's promising us. My life is your provision. It's unceasing in its fruitfulness. It will be a sanctuary unto you. It will provide you with safety and security, so you can flourish and be exceedingly fruitful. <laughs> right? We'll finish with these verses. You guys, forgive me. I know I went on for a long time. God bless you. Hebrews six verse thirteen. This is God talking. To, this is talking about promising to Abraham. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. Marriage! Swear, vow, oath! Saying, surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. Again, it's not just somebody saying something to you. There's a reason why you would think it has validity. What would make you think it has validity? Why would Abraham think it had validity that God said that, right? because Abraham wasn't just left with blind faith. I know the song said, even when I don't understand, hey, you can never rest if you don't understand. I promise you, you'll want to understand. Now, the only thing you do need to understand is God's with you, and he has a life that overcomes death. And so after Abraham, after he had patiently abhorred, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, the heirs of promise, wherein God wanting to show unto the heirs of promise, bended knee, swearing, oath, vow, wherein God wanting to show you and me the immutability Of his counsel, he confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, God, who cannot lie, Paul says, remember? Remember? What did the world tell us? God's a liar. Yeah, I know he promised you life, but look at this death. How can you be sure that his word means anything? Here comes God to show us his promise is immutable. To show us, like like Annette so beautifully said, what what did you say? God wasn't, the phrase escapes me now. Gambling. God wasn't like, well, let's see if my promise can be true. And we'll test it out on these dudes. (laughs) He wanted us to have a strong consolation. He wanted us to know why him promising us himself meant something. He wanted us to know why it was an immutable thing, him promising us himself, him promising us his life, so we could find strong consolation as we walk in a world that's all the time calling God a liar and pointing at the death everywhere telling us, hath God really promised? Look at this. That by two immutable things it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation. Who have fled for refuge to lay hope upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made a high priest forever after the order. Melchizedek now you know when God promised Abraham he'd be the father of many nations he ain't had no kids and not only did he not have any kids his wife's womb was dead and he was dead but God promised him to be the he'd be the father of many nations and be exceedingly fruitful how are you gonna convince a guy that sees death in himself and in his wife that he's gonna be the father of many nations how are you going to persuade that guy that the promise is sure and steadfast? Well, if you see death in yourself, the death would be what is standing in the way of you being fruitful, isn't it? So the only way you could convince that guy that your promise to make him exceedingly fruitful was sure is if you could show him you have a life that overcomes death. <laughs> That's the only way you could bring strong consolation. Because he would immediately be thinking, what about this death? How can your promise be true? Look at this body of death I'm clothed in. Look at the death in Sarah's womb. And so when God saw that he could swear, or when God saw that there was nothing greater that can overcome the deadness in Abraham's flesh than the life he had in himself, God swore by himself. And that's what you see when Abraham's put to sleep. And you see the fire go through the middle of the animals. You guys know the story? And you see the lamp go through the middle of the animals. That's the light. You know, John calls Jesus the light. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The resurrection of Jesus is God declaring to us that his promise to give us his life is immutable because his life can't be buffered by death. Death can't make his life unsafe. Death can't overcome his life. Death can't destroy his life. Death can't steal his life. Death can't corrupt his life. And the way he shows us who are heirs of the promise are the ones that he promised us to. Remember the place of sanctuary, the place of safety, security, the fruitfulness, the decoration, the beautifying, all the things he promised us when he got down on one knee. And now there's a bunch of gossiping going on where all of our friends and everybody we know is coming and calling the guy who got down on bended knee a liar. Well, what's he going to do to persuade us that the things he promised us is true? That when he promised us himself, he had something in himself that could perform everything he promised. Well, the way he's going to convince us that his promise is imm- is He's going to come and show us that He has a life in Himself that even overcomes death in the flesh, that can even heal us from death in the flesh, that can even keep us from death. That's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God doesn't just promise us His life. He swears by His life. You want to know why I can promise you these things? Check out the life I have in myself. Here it is. Boom. How many of you thought Jesus wasn't safe on the cross? How many of you thought he needed a place of refuge, a place of sanctuary? How many of you thought that God's promise to him was void? Look at the death of the cross. Everybody there thought the promise was void. But Jesus knew the life he shared with the Father from the beginning. He knew nothing could keep that life down. He knew the promise was immutable based on the power of a life that can't die. And that's what he showed us. The resurrection is God swearing to us by his life. That's what it means that when he could swear by nothing greater, he swore by himself. It means he saw the life he had can even overcome deadness in the body. And so he swore by the life he has in himself. The resurrection is God swearing by himself. It's God swearing by the life that he has that he can do everything he said when he got down on bended knee. It isn't just, I swear. How many of you believe when somebody tells you they swear? How many of you heard people violate what they swore? So God isn't just telling you, I swear, now go off and believe. He swore by himself. He swore by the life he has in himself. And then he showed us his life in the resurrection of Jesus and showed us how it was a sanctuary even for him. And now the promise he makes us There's a promise of eternal life. Eternal life promises us something. Eternal life promises us everything God promised when he got down on bended knee. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. You guys follow me? He swore by the life he has in himself because there's nothing that can give you a greater assurance that your life is being cared for than eternal life. There's nothing that can give you a greater assurance of safety, of security, of your life flourishing and bearing much fruit than eternal life. There's nothing that can give you a greater assurance than eternal life. Because we have death in the world telling us the promise is no good. The guy who got down on Bended Knee, he's a liar. He can't do what he said he would do. He's a bad, bad man. When I proposed to Becky, several of her friends didn't want her to come with me because they were busy abusing her. And they didn't want to have her taken away. And you know what they came to do? Slander my name. That's what death did to God. And now God shows us to give a strong consolation. Swearing, I swear. And when I swore, I swore by the life I have in myself. And because I don't just expect you to believe that I I have a life in myself when I vowed my life to you that can do what I said it could do, I'm going to show it to you right now. And he raised Jesus from the dead. (laughs) That's the promise of life for Greg. Thank you, Lord, that you made yourself vulnerable to us that you loved our life more than your own to the degree that you got down on bended knee and promised us yourself and committed yourself to our life. I thank you, Lord, that even when the world slandered your name and we turned our backs on you and we ran away from you and we joined ourselves to other things, I thank you, Father, that you were not discouraged in your pursuit for us, that you continued to pursue us, and that you got down on bended knee once again in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I thank you, Father, for giving us strong consolation. I thank you, Lord, for letting your name be tried in the fire. For letting your life be tried in the fire i thank you father that you sent your word to take on human flesh so that death could come upon or enter into that human flesh so we could see the life you have in yourself that you promised us and that we could see that you could actually do what you said you could do and that your proposal was true thank you father for giving birth to your promise in us Thank you for being our refuge. Amen. Glory to God. Y'all are awesome. Thank you so much.